Hi everyone, this is Ryan Dawson. My guest today is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. He also writes for Global Research and Boiling Frogs Post, my old stomping grounds. We're going to be talking about terrorism and uh, banking institutions and geopolitics, starting with the recent terrorist bombings in Russia and Volgograd, which used to be Stalingrad. And if there's time, I'll get his two cents and share my two cents on Glenn Greenwald and this new media venture. Okay, James, welcome to have you on. Well, thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Ryan. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, but it's usually about bad news. <laughs> but still, we've got to cover it. And I saw your report on RT, and I've seen your reports on Boiling Frogs Post about these bombings in uh, Volgograd in Russia. There were back-to-back -back bombings that killed 34 people in December, and there was also a bombing that killed 50 people on a bus in October. So a total of 84 people so far from bus bombings and train bombings in Volgograd, a small town in Russia. And James, I want your opinion on both the geography and the timing of the attack. A lot of people have brought up the Olympics as a related item to the bombings. And it may be, however, it may be other reasons. We know about Bandor Bush's warnings. And to dig a little deeper, who's really backing all of these terrorist groups? Well, I think that the uh, the bombings have to be seen in their geographical context, and we have to understand Volgograd, uh, Stalingrad, whatever you want to call it, um, it is a, really a transport hub between the North Caucasus region and the rest of Russia. It's a it's a pretty linchpin area. So I think that the uh, the the placement of these bombings is in itself a, a type of message and one that shows that uh, the whatever groups are behind this it, uh, are able to reach further into the, the sort of Russian homeland than just the regular sort of Chechen terrorists that we're suppo supposed to believe are, are kind of spontaneously doing all of this when, of course, anyone who actually looks into it finds out that these terrorists have been aided, abetted, coddled and uh, actually housed um, in many cases in the heart of Europe, in many NATO countries. Um, there's been all sorts of um, shenanigans that have been taking place over the last several years of uh, Russian t hit teams uh, basically taking out uh, Chechen terrorists in, in Turkey. There's been uh, one of the, the key leaders has been living openly in uh, Britain uh, in asyl uh, with asylum for the last several years, even though he was arrested at one point, I believe, in, in, in Belgium or, or somewhere along those lines. And uh, he was uh, sent back to, to Britain. Etc. Etc. So we have to understand that these groups, of course, are not just uh, spontaneous groups. That they they do have outside funding and backing and uh, support. And um, as with all of these terrorist groups, but I think that this bombing is these bombings are slightly different than than what we've seen in the North Caucasus region because again this this does extend further into sort of the Russian homeland territory and uh, and does leave more of a sort of psychological scar in terms of the timing i think that that, that you know this has to be seen in terms of uh, the upcoming olympics and i think specifically because this was actually predicted in a way um, by the the leaked meeting uh, minutes of the the meeting between Putin and uh, Bandar Bush that happened um, earlier this summer that I talked about with uh, Pepe Escobar for example um, earlier on CorbettReport.com we talked about this uh, back when it happened the 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 meeting minutes were leaked out and uh, basically Bandar Bush was giving delivering a direct threat to Putin saying that uh, you know we we control the, the what's happening in, in Chechnya and if you want to have a happy Olympics you better go along with 
what uh, we want in Syria. Obviously, they're not. Um, we have the uh, the Geneva Two conference coming up uh, in uh, just uh, two weeks now, in which they're supposedly going to try to hammer out a political solution to the Syrian crisis. And Saudi Arabia is now pretty much the lone holdout against that idea. Um, they're they're saying they, in fact, uh, we even had one of the the princes of the House of Saud come out in New York Times to say Saudi Arabia is going to go it alone in Syria because they just can't. Um, but back down from this fight. So so we know that they're going uh, full guns into this and we know that they've delivered that threat to Putin. So I I see this as a pretty logical, you know, one to um, connect the dots. But uh, I'd be interested to hear your take on it. Well, I also talked to Pepe Escobar last summer about Bandar Bush's meeting with Putin and, and he went over the same material. And it seems that he was correct because this, again, it happened in October and then we had, this is the third bombing in a row in the same area of only a million people. And I I think you're correct on the geographical set, uh, setting of it. It is a hub and a nexus point. And, and to go over something you, you said, I, I think you were talking about Abdullah Kapila is the one who was thrown in jail. And then they, they actually helped him escape by helicopter. And then the UK gave him citizenship. And this is done publicly, openly. That ought to be a bigger story than it, it seems to be, but uh, it right. isn't. No, you're, you're talking about Abdullah Chatley. I am talking about one of the heads of, uh, he was formerly one of the heads of the uh, the Chechen resistance, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head. It was Ahmed something or other, but I'll have to look that up. Well, that's pretty sad that there is more than one occurrence <laughs> yeah. of somebody getting UK citizenship after being on Interpol's most wanted list. And being an open terrorist. <laughs> well, I can think of half a dozen, and I don't, I don't even study this, uh, you can say, exclusively. But yes, a lot of terrorists end up uh, living openly in the UK for some reason. Yeah, I was, well, yeah, a lot of the oligarchs as well. But I, I think because they don't have extradition treaties with Russia is one reason. So they, I think it's just Israel and the UK that do that. So most of them end up in, in one place or the other. But um, for once, we had the CCTV camera um, caught one of the explosions, so that's actually rare in a terrorist attack, so at least we know the Russians didn't bomb themselves. But um, I think Bandar Bush's warning to say to Putin, you know, you're going to have terrorist attacks because of Russia's opposition to the organ-eating terrorists in Syria policy is very telling. And we actually had um, Dr. El Ja'afari, if I said his name right, um, he's the permanent, um, Syria's permanent representative to the UN. Um, he was speaking at a press conference following the UN session and he said there are members who are sponsoring terrorism publicly and he, he named Saudi Arabia specifically and saying that we have to go at, at the root of these problems but it isn't just Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is more of a visible and we always see these Islamic terrorists or the more theatric and invisible people who are carrying out these terrorist attacks but it's very apparent that, uh, and they're also able to leave t uh, tapes and, and talk on terrorist websites, which I find fascinating, but it's pretty obvious that they're getting financed and armed and, and even bailed out uh, of jail and somebody's just helping them avoid arrest most of the time and it always goes back to Western powers and this is, I think, a more crucial part of the issue rather than chasing around terrorists is to look at the root of it and see where they're getting their guns and their money and their financing. Well, that's exactly right. And I know you've talked about it before, but it's relevant uh, here is obviously, I mean, there's always cutouts and always plausible deniability in these types of operations. And we've seen it going back decades and decades, going back to uh, the freedom fighters in Afghanistan. And uh, the, of course, it was uh, America was just supplying the CIA $5 billion or whatever they pumped into there. 
um, uh, behind the scenes in the black budget, um, they, they were supplying it not to the Arab Afghans, but to the uh, to the actual Afghan fighters uh, via the Pakistani ISI, which was, of course, a fair dealer there. And uh, with, with sure... through BCII, the same banks involved in Iran Contra exactly and right. Kennedy and so forth. Exactly right. So, I mean, we know that these types of um, operations are always um, ongoing, and we never learn about them officially until decades later, if if even that. So, I think we would be naive to think that the exact same things aren't going on. We know that there has been um, uh, I mean, we've documented American and British uh, involvement in, in all sorts of different ways. And of course something else that I, I talked about in my uh, episode, I had a podcast episode specifically who is really behind the Syrian uh, war. And of course we have to look at the Yanon plan, um, which has been on the uh, table for, for decades now, which is specifically t- designed to basically break up and uh, balkanize the entire Arab uh, Middle Eastern region for the the purposes of uh, basically Israeli uh, uh, security, as they would put it, obviously, um, and and uh, that plan is being followed to a T. Not of course, not only of course the breaking up of Iraq into the uh, three warring factions, exactly as uh, had been uh, called for in that plan, but now we see, of course, the balkanization of uh, well, basically, I mean, Syria breaking apart. We see uh, Lebanon now uh, getting into uh, some some tensions that are really starting to tear that country apart and it's starting to spread so mission accomplished for the unknown plan um so i think we have to look at israel as a major uh, sponsor of this terror as well well i'm glad you brought that up because oded yinan's plan is one of the most underreported stories some people will look at the clean break policy papers from pearl and, and his proteges which also reiterate a lot of the same things but the more in-depth plan was the Yunnan plan for sure, and that is exactly the roadmap in Iraq and exactly what happened. And, and speaking of you know Reagan's freedom fighters, which became terrorists later in Afghanistan, I think it's even more fascinating today when you have the so-called terrorists in Iraq where, who cross over the imaginary line and come into Syria, and now suddenly they're not terrorists, they're part of the FSA and fighting for freedom. But it's the exact same people who are killing Americans in Iraq and killing Iraqis. Yeah, funny how that works. And uh, yeah, of course, I mean, it's just par for the course. I mean, we've seen the the exact same thing happen over and over and over and over again. I think we'd be naive to assume that it would ever take place in a different context. And, you know, Libyan uh, fighters that were were, uh, fighting against American interests are are now Libyan friends fighting with America. So, I mean, it happens over and over in every possible uh, imaginable context. And Syria is just the latest battlefront in, you know, an ongoing series of events that have been taking place for decades. Yeah, the Trawag mercenaries, uh, mercenaries in Libya went into Malia and now are fighting on the French's side. It's unbelievable. But um, I mean, you got guys like uh, Anders from the, uh, he's the former prime minister of Denmark and he's the secretary general of NATO, uh, offering his condolences to the victims <laughs> of the bombings. And I'm sitting here thinking, but <laughs> NATO is the premier the premier head of these these terrorist privateers, uh, the Chechens in particular, uh, what audacity for him to, I mean, of course he has to offer his condolences, but to me it just seemed like a, a wink and a nod, ha ha, and rubbing it in. Yeah. I mean, how, how can NATO really act like they're genuine and all with something like that? 
Absolutely. I mean, that that really did turn my stomach a little bit when I saw it, especially I, I saw it on a, on a Twitter feed and you see Anders Fogg Rasmussen's smiling face next to that, uh, that those condolences, very heartfelt, I'm sure. Yes, I mean, obviously, NATO is uh, is right at the heart of this. And, and I would imagine most of your listeners are, are aware of the uh, Gladio B series that I, I did with uh, Sibel Edmonds last year. But for those who aren't, I, I would suggest you go and take a look at that. Um, once again, I mean, Gladio the Operation Gladio of, of old just uh, got spun into an, uh, the, the same old plan, but just now using uh, Islamic terrorists as, as the sword of, of the NATO imperialist army. So, um, it, it, I mean, absolutely all roads lead back to, uh, if not uh, Rome, then perhaps uh, Brussels in this case. And, uh, and I think we have to have NATO as one of the major uh, suspects when, whenever this happens. And, and again, it's not obviously a straight line. It's not uh, NATO operatives that are doing this. It's, it's obviously that's something that's being sponsored and, and, uh, and done from behind the scenes, which means there's going to be cutouts, which means that we're going to be called conspiracy theorists for bringing this up. And that's, uh, that's the name of the game. That's exactly how it's been set up and why it's been set up in this way with, uh, with all the, you know, the cutouts and the, the different uh, go-betweens to make it uh, so that it, uh, there's always an element of speculation in this. Um, unless you're inside this and unless you're part of the plans, there's going to be an element of speculation. But it's informed speculation that we have from whistleblowers and documents and decades of history that we know that NATO has been sponsoring Islamic terrorists. They've been working with them, cooperating with them, that high-ranking American Pentagon officials have been meeting with Ayman uh, al-Zawahiri and others in, in meetings all the way up to 9-11. Um, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And yet, no matter how many of these dots you connect and in, with what level of documentation, it will always be uh, to, taken back to that level. Oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. Well, I don't, you know, there are some stupid conspiracies, but there are also conspiracies that happen. And every covert operation that any intelligence agency in the world has ever done is a conspiracy by definition. It's a bunch of people that would do something that's otherwise illegal and lying about it. I made a movie about the thing. I did 60 years of it. This film called Decades of Deception, going over different conspiracies. But you're mentioning um, in Brussels, you know, Belgium is one of four countries where uh, they won't allow FISA's uh, from the FBI any kind of warrants. And you were talking about 9-11, too. Again, they wouldn't allow the um, FISA to tap uh, and look into Masawi's computer and you know, open openly Al-Mihar and, uh, and uh, Al-Hazmi, two of the 9-11 hijackers, are living in California with their real names, even though they're on a no-fly list from the State Department. So to say... Oh, people are not purposely looking the other way or allowing or fostering terrorism to happen. You'd have to just imagine an extreme level of incompetence uh, for that to, to go on. And you'd have to rationalize your position over and over again because it's just there are just countless examples of uh, either massive incompetence or collusion. It's also exceptionally important for people to re remember and to keep in the forefront of their mind NATO's role in Afghanistan and uh, their their role in, in invoking Article 5 after 9-11 and um, why and when and how that actually took place. And of course, it was uh, it took place in a mostly behind doors, closed doors, secretive meeting that took place among the uh, the NATO members. Um, in the wake of 9-11 in the, in the days after the attacks in which um, the evidence that was presented to them was uh, uh, compiled by a U.S., I believe a State Department official, I believe by the name of Frederick Taylor, maybe I'm getting that 
confused, but it was called the Taylor Report. I'm I'm fairly certain, and uh, and unfortunately, of course, that to this day remains classified. What evidence they ended up showing their their NATO buddies to say that this was Osama bin Laden, but as I'm sure that you and your listeners know, it was all a bunch of hokum and uh, concocted out of nothing, pulled out of their posterior, and that was the the lie upon which the now what twelve year long invasion and occupation of Afghanistan has taken place, and uh, we're asked to believe that they're about uh, ready to start rolling up uh, rolling up the drawbridge and, and getting out of Afghanistan this year. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And again, I think we understand that's not going to happen as um, as the uh, Karzai puppet is going to undoubtedly sign the uh, the exterior uh, the security extension uh, agreement. Um, Although he he was he was trying to put conditions on that, and if they adopt he, it, they, they, he won't. But I mean, supposedly, <laughs> well, even 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 if he gets some concessions, I mean, whether he does or not, he's going to sign it. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And he does put up a show from time to time. And sometimes it's a very, I, I, I almost want to believe it because I mean, for example, last year when he came out and said, Hey, look, the U S is collaborating with the Taliban to create terror in order to keep the, the justification so they can stay in the country. He came out openly saying that and appealing obviously to the people of Afghanistan who understand this and know it to be true and, uh, and, and want uh, the president to reflect that uh, it causes a bit of a kerfuffle. Kerry goes over, smooths things over, gives him another, you know, bag full of money from the CIA and he shuts up and, you know, everything's everything's good again. Um, he, he gets to play to his base electorate and he also gets the uh, the shut up money from the CIA. So it all works out for Karzai and his family. I think that was just a case of shaking the money tree. I'm going to rattle my cage until they give me some more green because Karzai is just one of those typical, I call him banana republic, even though it's no longer about fruit, but the same sort of... Uh, opium si- republic, yeah. Yeah, this system. It's opium, it's oil. It's this. In this case, it'd be opium and heroin and so on, but that's just him rattling his cage. If you read uh, Why Peace and a lot of the people who are you know, from Afghanistan or Pakistan wrote in that book... Uh, they hate Karzai the most, followed by the Americans, then the Taliban, <laughs> like in that order, um, the locals anyway. Uh, and it didn't begin that way, but once the occupation started and and the mess was made the way it was, uh, then they they turned on the Americans. But uh, in the beginning, they actually you know you had hopes and and believed the propaganda. But Karzai saying that is just him appealing to his base the same way. Now and then, like if you cherry pick it, Obama says some pretty good things but he doesn't do them and he's very clever in his wording uh, on on how he uh on what he says and what he's actually planning on doing well uh let's let's redirect this conversation a little bit because i i want to get your take about um saudi and its role in syria now i mean we know that uh they've they've provided 400 million dollars in funds as of august so however many more funds they've provided to the to the fight there in syria and obviously now they're they're basically the only outside power that's really supplying and supporting those uh, that that insurgency now that Qatar and, and all of the others are, are kind of pulling out and going for this political process saving face venture um, what is your take on on Saudis going it alone uh, strategy they're they're pulling out of this UN Security Council I mean that's that's some pretty major shifts that they're making right now and I don't think they're quite ready to cut the cord with the US but I mean they are they're making significant moves in that direction are they are they actually doing this or is this is this some kind of shaking of the the American money tree uh, that's by- what I think that is too because yeah. if you remember when they were t- kind of um, at least acting like they were eyeing China and they were going to sell more oil to China and this and that that was again I think shaking the American money tree because they're never going to break that relationship and what's happened is it 
not about Syria. It's uh, some of their buddies, like the Qataris, they're what the beef with Qatar is in Egypt, and because of that is why they're out in Syria, and now Saudi is left holding the bucket by itself. Turkey had its other... Everybody had these independent issues of, of their own personal reasons of why they're, they're getting out of it, and Saudi Arabia is just so neck deep in all this kind of Wahhabi terrorism everywhere from Somalia to Syria. And so uh, they don't have... They can't get out of it. Um, and But I don't think they're really breaking with the U.S. I think they're rattling the tree to get more money if you saw what happened right after they said that is where did all the new uh boeing and locking planes and things that aren't even they don't even use they don't even have pilots for them but the the uh, saudi saudis bought all these and what they're doing is just just a way of it's not really in u.s interest or saudi interest you have to understand that this is in corporate interest of course and so the military industrial complex of both nations end up uh with a lot of personal profits uh, which they did. But you have to have conflicts in order to, to justify selling this stuff. And it's what they do. And Syria, of course, they're going along with the Yunnan plan, but the Israelis can't do it openly uh, for obvious reasons. I mean, nobody would ally with them, but uh, the Saudis can get away with it. So yeah, that's the and it, I mean, it's interesting to watch the uh, the context uh, that this is taking place and, and sort of the discourse around it. So that now, I mean, even pretty mainstream publications are admitting pretty openly that, yeah, well, basically, uh, the, the the Saudis are pretty much an, a proxy of, of Israel in this case. Um, I, I, I mean, point. Israel has bombed them four times. Yep, absolutely. You know, once before the conflict with, with the supposed nuclear weapons facility or something, the warehouse they bombed. Um, but what they're really doing, and this is this goes back to the whole chemical weapons thing, is, um, of course, the chemical weapons were, were not from the Syrian government, and, and I think we, that's a dead horse. Like, we can go over it if you want, but um, I think everybody knows now uh, that in each instance, because there are multiple incidents, that the chemical weapons were actually used by the uh, mercenary terrorists, not the Assad regime. And so... But what, why do they want to dismantle those? Is because that was their deterrent against the Israelis. The Israelis have nuclear weapons, and the Israelis have a superior military, at least on paper, everyone thinks. And so that's why they had chemical weapons, was to prevent Israel from taking the rest of the Golan Heights that Assad's father had won back during in Yom Kippur War and pressing on to greater Israel, which they tried to do in Lebanon twice already, and, and they've been bombing Syria. So by getting rid of their deterrent, uh, by using this pretext of chemical weapons and blaming it on Assad, now they've had to get rid of all the weapons. They no longer have that, well, you're going down with me sort of deterrent. So Israel's just moving along with the UN plan. They've gotten rid of the guns, and they've pressured Assad, and they've gotten all this regional infighting between Kurds and Shiites and Sunnis, and that's exactly what they wanted. They, they openly stated every Arab-on-Arab Arab conflict is beneficial to us, and that's how they want to do it. In Saudi Arabia... It Israel been working together on a number of projects, but the Saudis, these these princes really, and Sabel's talked about this too. They're not really Saudi Arabian. I mean, they're American. They go to Georgetown. They get you know rolled through school, and they don't know anything about anything. But they have a lot of money yeah. and a title, and they're just pawns. Exactly. I mean, the House of Saud was created by the West. It's propped up by the West. They are absolutely not Saudi Arabian in any way, shape, or form. Um, and I think we have to keep that in mind whenever we look at what Saudis are doing. But uh, on that note, I mean, the, uh, speaking of deterrence in the region, obviously the other kind of big um, player in this, of course, is Iran. 
um, which has been effectively sidelined through the uh, the genocidal sanctions and all that that's been taking place. But uh, interestingly, I mean, obviously Saudi cites the the Iranian issue as one of the main reasons why they're breaking with America, if that's what they're really trying to do. But um, I th- I've thought the, the story that came out in November uh, was fascinating. Saudi nuclear weapons on order from Pakistan, whereby they're saying that they have uh, they, they've placed an order with Pakistan for nuclear weapons to be delivered in the event uh, that Iran looks like they're going to cross the threshold into uh, nuclear weapons production. I don't know what that that's all about, but uh, but apparently they they have them. They're on order, um, and that's that's a pretty major thing. I mean, Saudi is now by by de, sort of de facto is a nuclear power now, and that's a, a threshold that was just silently crossed in the last few months, or at least admitted that it was silently crossed, and no one's uh, no one's even really talking about that. Well, they still won't even talk about Israel's nukes, which they acquired by stealing <laughs> the material from the United 40 States. Forty years ago, yeah. I mean, Arnon Milchan just came out. He was one of the. He's the Hollywood mogul, but he's also now bragging that he was a, an asset or agent for Israel, and that he's it was his fronts that were actually acting um, to help funnel these weapons and material. Bibi Netanyahu was was getting Krytron triggers from Heli Trading Company. It all goes back to Arnon Milchan and. He doesn't get in any trouble for admitting any of this. He gets a pat on the back for it. You know, and if the Saudis are Americans, the Americans do everything for the Israelis. I mean, the Americans not benefiting from not buying oil from Iran and putting sanctions on Iran. And Iran's not a threat to the United States. But uh, American policy in the Middle East uh, is and has been since Johnson Israeli policy. And that's what they do. Yeah, exactly right. And I don't, I don't think Saudi Arabia, though, and just as my opinion, I could be wrong, but I don't think they're ever going to break that relationship with the United States. They're, they're too, co- they're codependent on each other, and I think they're just rattling the money tree. And I think they really are trying to pressure the U.S. to attack Iran. Saudi Arabia and Israel have been angry at the Obama administration, which has been very reluctant to, to push a, a, a hot war on Iran for. Uh, because most of the generals are not insane and know how bad that would be. And they, and after Iraq, they just don't have the, the clout to get away with something like that. They couldn't even bomb Syria. So getting a war with Iran, I just don't think the American public would put up with it. I, I I agree with you on all of that, but let me play devil's advocate for a moment and say, well, uh, sure. what if, what, I mean, we're approaching this completely from the geopolitical angle, but what if there's another angle that we can approach that from to take a look at what's happening in the Saudi-U.S. relationship? And what if we look at the uh, the the incredible boom in, in domestic oil production in the U.S. in the last few years that's really completely changed the dynamics of, of global um, energy geopolitics uh, to the point where China That is has... interesting because you're talking about the fracking and if with TPP they'll be able to sell a lot of that to Asia too. Well, there you go. I mean, the U.S. now exporting. They have an abundance of oil, an embarrassment of riches. Um, it is, it is, uh, it really is changing uh, the, the game because now um, China has become the largest importer of oil in the world, um, surpassing the United States, um, because now the U.S. is importing less. So, um, so we've had that changeover, and uh, and now I I, I I can't remember the exact stat, but something by 2018, they're saying China is going to account for something like 70 percent of oil Im- uh, all oil imports in the world. Um, that is, I mean, that's a that's a huge shift, and one that I don't, I mean, I don't think that the Saudis or any oil exporter can could actually avoid i mean they they have to increase their trade with with china um so how how can that possibly figure into this without in some way changing the relationship that's that's taken place i mean the, uh, the u.s oh, yeah. needs the saudis less than ever now 
Well, I don't disagree with that. I just don't think Saudi oil is what straps the U.S. I think the, the main appeal of Saudi Arabia is being a major cash cow for the military industrial complex. They are the number one purchaser of all their toys. And it's the weapons industry more than the oil industry that has more pull, at least in Congress. I mean, they do spend 51% of discretionary taxes on the military, not on energy companies. Those are private companies, and they can bribe the Congress, and they can push like that, but they don't have the pull of of Boeing and Lockheed and all these giant aerospace companies. You're talking about half a billion dollars for one unit, and Saudi Arabia is buying them by the dozens uh, with their oil money. And the U.S. said, well, you can waste your money on whatever. But Saudi Arabia is forced to do that because if they don't have that leverage, then the U.S. can basically tell them uh, to to go pound sand. And so the MIC uh, likes this lucrative relationship. And I agree with you on the on the oil. I think that's very a good point. But I don't think that's the main reason why the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have a relationship. I think Saudi Arabia is the main uh, sort of nexus for this privateer network to get Wahhabis to go. Um, start stuff in Mali or Niger or wherever, so it acts as a pretext for Western powers to go in and have a military presence, and then they purchase a lot of weapons, and the oil is probably third place. I, I agree with you on that. I, I don't really think the oil is the driving in, in that relationship, but it does create at the, at any rate late, rate the, uh, the, the excuse for the laundering of the money back into the U.S. banks, which of course is the petrodollar paradigm that's propped up the dollar for decades. And, uh, and now that China is going to be the largest importer by far of oil in the world, and increasingly so, I mean, there is going to be that shift into the into the renminbi, the yuan, um, that's taking place already. I mean, um, uh, China has gone from something like 2% of uh, all international settlements um, being conducted in yuan uh, just I th I th less than two years ago, and it's now 8%. I mean, it's quadrupled in the past in the past two years. That's a pretty remarkable um, statistic. It's now, uh, it just surpassed the euro as the second most used uh, or the, uh, currency in, in international trade settlements. So, so there is, I mean, there is a dynamic that's taking place there. And I, I mean, we, we both are experiencing the, uh, the Asia Pacific pivot right now here in Japan. So we are living through what, uh, what is looking like the shaping up of the next big excuse for the military industrial complex to, to rack up their, their dollars in a different part of the world. And uh, and I, I'm just interested to see how that's going to play out and how that changing dynamic will change the uh, the balance of power, the, the, uh, at least the calculations that go into the, the strategic alliances in the Middle East. What you just said made me think of something, actually, because a lot of the tug of war with oil between uh, – it's not just about getting oil. It's making sure that others don't get oil because if they – they want others dependent on the IMF and they want others to be stuck in this perpetual debt cycle. So they don't want any countries to have any kind of super resource that can get them out of debt and allow them to pay for their own infrastructure and everything, not just in the Middle East, but in Africa too. But I was just talking about Mali with Rob Prince and I was reading about uh, Gavin yesterday because Marathon Oil from the Rockefellers and the Chinese are having a, a fight over um, the oil and natural gas in, in Gabon, and they're actually Marathon's making their first deep water salt oil rig, whatever. I don't know what that is, but it was important, and it was on their news, and I guess it digs up a lot of it. But they're fighting with the Chinese. But again, who is it that allows the pretext for either, it's usually the French, but sometimes the Americans too, to go into Northern Africa and have a military presence and continue this sort of economic dependency, even though they do have political autonomy, they are their own country, they're not colonies anymore, and on paper anyway, but 
it's the these Wahhabi groups from Saudi Arabia. I mean, whether it's in Ethiopia or Somalia or Mali or Gabon, etc. I mean, it looks like pretty soon the Central Republic, uh, and then of course you know Rwanda and so on. It's always these Slafis and the, the Sudans. They're in the middle of a, South Sudan's in the middle of a civil war right now. Um, the U.S. just got its uh, spooks out of there. I mean, um, State Department officials out of there. <laughs> Um, and you see this happening, but they again they need Saudi Arabia has the the people on the ground to actually orchestrate that and the plausible deniability. The U.S. can't directly finance um, yeah, the Islamic sword. terrorists, Absolutely. you know exactly. So that's another uh, important factor for Saudi Arabia in this play with China. Now China's going around and gobbling up oil resources, but the U.S. is going to use the the Saudis, um, you know, rent a crowd crazies to um, give themselves or the French need the West. Uh, a reason to uh, either stay in or increase their presence in the, a lot of these African nations where China has been trying to get a foothold. That's right. And I, I really think that Africa over the, the, the coming years is going to be really more of the kind of central point of, of this particular um, interplay. And I, I think you're, you're touching on that exactly. Um, it, my analysis would be would that, that it, 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 I mean, basically Africa is going to be the place where this, especially the, uh, the kind of oil co- combat uh, is taking place increasingly so. And, and of course, we just mentioned South Sudan, and uh, which of course was just a complete creation of, of Israel and the United States. Um, the, uh, just a complete concoction, oh, and, yeah. and uh, it, it it is absolutely central to this uh, this this game that's taking place right now between the U.S. and China over oil resources. But uh, again, it's uh, well, mean, it's, it's the two things. It's it's China getting oil, but it's also the more the scarier thing I think for the West is that these nations can gather some kind of economic de- uh, independency because it, by selling it and not. But, well, I mean, they have the oil now, but the oil is just going through Western companies and the profits, it doesn't trickle down, you know. And so China's actually a way of them getting in is to say, we'll let you keep a little exactly. bit of it. Yeah. And, and the U.S. and the French are scared to death that a lot of these countries will gain some kind of economic independency because exactly, the way it is right. now, because, yeah. yeah, they're just beholden to the IMF and these other, exactly. they're China, world, but they're American banks. Right. You know? China's bilateral deals includes infrastructure development, which, you know, obviously is anathema to the people who want to keep them under the boot of the IMF. So exactly right. I mean, that's what this is really about. And I think, I mean, uh, America is just hungering for uh, any sort of excuse to actually get AFRICOM boots on the ground. I mean, anything that they could do to get an AFRICOM base in Africa, I think would be, uh, you know, what they're aiming for, because of course, that's the big foot in the door for all of this and for the military industrial (laughs) complex. So leading from behind on the French is just embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) I yes, for any red blooded American, I'm sure that must be. (laughs) Oh, you were talking about the petrodollar too. Again, um, another reason why I think that's in, in the back of my list is because when you look at the sanctions on Iran, um, it actually does the opposite. It's forcing them to sell the oil not in dollars because they're selling it to the UN. That Japan buys 20% with the yen. I don't know how they what they do with the other 80. I guess they go through dollars, but um, India has been using gold and and there's a lot of black market too. And so they they've been getting around the petrodollar because of the sanctions. So it's had the opposite effect if that was the prime mover. I think the Israelis are the real prime mover. Yeah. And the EU also gets shot in the foot for that because obviously they, they depended a lot on Iranian oil, especially in Italy and places like that. So, yes, I mean, uh, it's a suicidal move. It doesn't make any sense from any perspective except for, of course, it's not really about uh, the, the economic effects. Um, it's It's about exactly it's about what they can do to 
co-opt uh, what's happening in in Iran and to uh, to to steer this towards again the the uh, Western imperial aggression and the the aims of um, it's like Pinak stated they don't want any they don't want any military or economic rivals or challengers to arise and so as long as they can keep this sort of dependency and perpetual debt system on different banks and keep people from you know if Iran gets nuclear power for electricity for example that would free up all the oil they currently consume and they'd be able to put it on the market they want to break anybody any group whether it's in the Middle East or in Africa a lot of these countries it's not like they, they're just full of inept people and nobody works and everyone's lazy and they're just dirt poor because nobody everyone's stupid or something. It's because they're in debt, because their governments, not the people, not businesses, but their governments have borrowed so much money and depleted their currencies and just ruined. There's nothing, there's no amount of brain power that can fix that. I mean, you've got to fix the banking situation or you're nothing. I mean, and the way out of that is to build their own infrastructure and quit taking loans and do like Eritrea did uh, in northern Ethiopia. Um, they kicked out all the NGOs. They kicked out. They paid off their loans, and the Bolivia did the same thing. They said, "We're not going to borrow anymore. We're going to make our own stuff." And that's that's what they're scared to death of happening. Because that, then there could be uh, either a zone or a particular country that could rival uh, the current world order, which is the, you know Western Europe and the United States and Canada uh, sitting on top of the throne. Well, then what's your take on the BRICS Development Bank, which obviously failed to really launch at the uh, the last major BRICS summit um, in the way that it was expected to? Anyway, there's a lot of lip service going around about it. But um, but I, I don't know. I'm extremely wary of that as uh, being a true alternative to the IMF power structure. I think it's just um, the BRICS are trying to create their own. But uh, I'd be yeah, interested to hear your like, take. I think so. I mean, I'm reserving judgment on that for now because I want to there's some things I want to look at, but it it did seem to me that uh, this was the non-aligned movement too. That they're just trying to. It's not like uh, one's good and the other's bad. They just like one's bad, and the other wants to be bad but isn't as yeah. good at being bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're not as good at being bad. Yeah, they just want to replace it with their own sort of um, and game and do the same thing. I mean, it, a lot, it's people bash on America all the time. Me too. I, I mean. As an American, I feel like it's my duty to do that. But um, it's not that uh, other countries wouldn't like to be emulating and doing the same thing. It's not that they're just naturally benevolent and America's evil. I mean, they're all evil and America's good at it uh, just because the Europeans tore each other apart during World War II and America and Russia were on the top. I mean, this is yeah. whoever's stronger is better at exploiting everybody. Right. And, and well, a lot of it is just geography, too. They had two yeah. oceans protecting them. Well, exactly. Well, I mean, to be clear, it's the psychopathic uh, governments that are the, the problem, not the people. So. Yes, it's government. <laughs> Government's the problem. American government, not the American people. Yeah, well, yeah, of course. Uh, but... um. People do have a responsibility, and uh, you know a lot of people are apolitical in in most countries, Japan especially. And at least one good thing I can say about Americans, even though they do get uh, suckered into wedge issues and, and pointless drivel sometimes, they're pretty political, um, and they and they they get mad about the wrong things a lot. But at least it's on the radar. At least they can talk about it openly. I mean, I, I think there are political passions in Japan. It's just people don't talk about them in polite company. Yeah, I know how that is. I, mean, I don't know if you're familiar with American folklore or Burr Rabbit. Have you ever heard the stories like the tar baby? And the, don't throw me in the briar patch. Yeah, that's exactly. Don't throw me in the briar patch. That, that 
sums up if anyone else knows about Bird Rabbit and Uncle Remus. It's actually old Cherokee stories, but that pretty much sums up the the actual war on terror. Yeah. And the war on drugs. And uh, actually the Federal Reserve. I'm working on a Federal Reserve documentary and it strikes me how um, they used that exact ploy to get the Federal Reserve Act passed. Oh, the Aldridge Act. Oh, that's the the evil Bankers Act. But the Federal Reserve Act, that'll that'll restrain them. Don't don't throw us in that briar patch. Anyway, yeah, no, it's... Yeah, uh, that's that is what happened. Bill Steele did a good uh, movie on that called uh, Jekyll Island, the movie. And then for that, Money Masters, which I liked, it was three hours long. Other people liked the new one, but I like them both. Well, uh, Money Masters was one of was probably the if I could point to one documentary that really got me started along the path that I'm on, it would be the Money Masters because that's when the penny really dropped for me, and I realized that if the money system is is a complete scam, then yes, everything can be a scam, and so that's when I really started examining things. And so I'm hoping to be able to do something um, along similar lines in terms of uh, hopefully making the penny drop for other people. But it's taking me a long time to get this Federal Reserve documentary done. I've been working well, on it. Well, so. if you want contact with Bill, I can put you in touch. In uh, fact, I've had him on the program several times and invited him on for uh, to, specifically for this uh, project, and he uh, declined. So there you oh, go. Oh, well, I can talk him into it. <laughs> <laughs> Pull it, pull his, twist his arm. No, I've got, I've got some good uh, guests lined up, so we're, we're working. He, he's an idol of mine because I, I again, Money Masters was a pivotal film for myself as well. And then the last time I was, we were being interviewed on the same show out of New York, and he said, uh, between me, myself, and Carl, Carl Denninger, he just didn't know that we were the best. And I, and hearing that from him, I just was floored. What a compliment, you know, from that Bill. That is, that is very good. Um. Yes, and you should. Uh, I, I don't know if uh, you're familiar with Paul Grignon. He did the Money Is Debt series, but uh, he. Oh yeah, he did, yeah. He's done some incredible work in the last few years that's been almost completely overlooked because it's it's quite complex. But uh, he has this idea for self-issued credit that I think is absolutely just an incredible idea for uh, for the system that that should be in place in an ideal world. And obviously, we're not there, but uh, we're getting very far from the topic. So sorry to. Well, steer it's you all related. It's a geopolitical show. You know, it's the the Russian bombings we see i mean has anybody come out and claimed usually that some terrorist group will come out and say i it was us but that hasn't happened so as far as i know has uh, to be claimed? honest i i haven't seen that um if if it has happened it has not been published publicized widely i i really don't think anyone has claimed responsibility yet yeah the, i know the one in october they just said it was recent converts to islam but it's how can you disprove that or what, yeah. you know, it's, it's not like, how do I know that's true or not? Well, I bet they were self-radicalized, clean skins, all the other buzzwords and crap that they throw at people during these times. And, uh, well, it was like the Boston bombers, yeah. not to segue again, but they, you know, converted to Islam in Boston. <laughs> mm, yeah. Right. Of course. And of course, that also ties into this area in Dagestan and the North Caucasus, which, again, is just an incredibly important region. And uh, again, I've talked about this at length with uh, Sibel Edmonds in, in our work, and I've covered it on the uh, iOpener report on, on uh, BoilingFrogsPost.com. So people, people have got to see that whole Gladio B series and read my comments on this, too. <laughs> on on Boiling Frogs, because that's that and the sister look and I mean, just... You have to, there's not a quick way to, to summarize this stuff, but if you just start looking at the issues and it's just the re- repetitive, the same kind of systematic, you know, plots over and over again in different areas and it makes you sick and 
either you know what's going on or you don't. It's kind of like the Federal Reserve thing. Like once you know about it, you you can't reverse, you can't go back. And once you understand how you know the money supply works and all that, it, people really have to understand that terrorism. Um, for the last, at least since the 50s, since after the Korean War, terrorism has been um, modeled after the privateer system that we have rent a terrorist. And that's how modern wars have been fought ever since the nuclear bomb was invented, because that's how they kind of had to be fought, um, was through proxies. And they you know, can rent, it doesn't matter if it's cartels in Mexico or if it's uh, the Yakuza in Japan or triads in China or the Casa Nostra in the U.S. or... Um, Al Nusra or MEK or Jandala or you know name a group. <clears throat> it's the same system, and, and that's what they yeah. Do. And I would say, I mean, that's that's they're not back just even crazy because they worship Allah. I mean, that's right. just a very dismissive. They don't hate us for our freedoms. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even I don't even know what that means. No, exactly. No, I think you're right. I mean, this is the the pattern, and and again, it creates that plausible deniability. It creates the cutouts, creates the go betweens that makes it all uh, so that people can claim to wash their hands oh you know we had nothing to do with that and it's it unfortunately it's uh, it continues to be used because it continues to be effective because the uh the vast majority of the public continues to be very credulous to whatever they hear um from the the official propaganda and until we find a way to really counteract that on a massive scale i mean it's going to continue to be used and i think the only thing that we can do is to continue pressing in the wake of these attacks to um to get people to think outside of that box and i i really do think that in 2013 we did, we did cross a certain line. I think that uh, that if, for example, in the wake of the Boston bombings, I've talked about this on my podcast a few times now. I really did see a noticeable increase, not only in traffic to my site, but I think just generally the, the sort of ideas, the the memes, the, the the idea of false flag terrorism itself was something that was now being talked about quite openly and uh, among people who had never talked about it before, and it was being covered in mainstream headlines on Yahoo and the Atlantic and, and things like that. We're talking about false flags in the Boston bombing. Um, I really do think that that was a uh, kind of threshold that was crossed. crossed, And I, I think that's because that meme has been implanted and we've talked about it and it's been explained to people, why would a government attack itself? Um, enough yeah. times um, that has been countered that we are starting to have an effect. And I think we really do have to continue pressing that and, and realize that we are having an effect on the societal discourse. And, um, you know, we're not we're not all the way there yet. And the, the understanding is still shady and, and vague at best, but, but we're getting there. And I think well, it's we a vast improvement from before, like 12 years ago when I started doing media. It, it just people just no, you didn't, you couldn't get that go anywhere with that. But now you can. But there are two things happening. You have more people um, looking at the idea or concept of false flags and accepting it and seeing the historical precedent of it over and over. But you also have a group that just thinks automatically everything's a false flag without actually yeah. looking at it case by case and yeah. they kind of jump the gun and and so you got to be wary of that that those that faction or camp or whatever right. as well and who might be leading that because there's a lot of uh, just silly Go people Pro. well exactly <laughs> i mean there's a lot of silly people out there who will believe that but i think that a lot of that probably sources from other other areas as well but i think you're right i mean there's a there, uh, again we have to use discernment and uh, unfortunately there is not always uh, a lot of that to go around so so again i hope people out there can find sources that they trust and i'm not i never tell people to to trust me i always verify what i say but uh, but absolutely i think people have to you know 
use the, use their brains a little bit and uh, and realize that uh, that there is nuance to these things and we shouldn't assume anything off the start. I think we should always follow the evidence. And uh, unfortunately, that's a, a tedious pro- prospect for a lot of people who just want to, you know, have a cu- cookie cutter response to any event that p- pops up anywhere in the world. Well, a sloganeer is just so much easier, but we got about 15 minutes left and I want to talk about another aspect, another layer on all this because we have all of what we were just talking about going on with the terrorism and the different layers and plausible deniability, which, by the way, is not a word, but what we're talking about is a, a phrase coined by Ollie North during the trials for Iran-Contra. He talked about plausible deniability. That's why we say that. But um, there are also gatekeepers because we we're talking about people who jump the gun, and there's COINTELPRO, but there are also just opportunists who want to make a buck. And, and this is my segue to Glenn Greenwald. <laughs> see, <laughs> well done. Because... <laughs> At first, I like Green. I like him. Um, his reporting for you know at least for a major paper is was relative to the other ones much uh, you know much better than than the usual kind of reporting out of out of British papers. But um, I'll I'll let you do it. I'll let you bash and I'll play devil's advocate because you did a report on it before I did. But um, he's got all the all of these leaks from Edward Snowden and they're being released at a trickled pace. Uh, what are your thoughts on Glenn? Is he uh, just trying to make money? Has he been paid off? Or he just can't vet these sources fast enough? Or what do you think? Well, anything that I would say in regards to his motivation would be complete speculation. And I don't really have a lot to, to back up that with regards to what's motivating him. But I think we can clearly see that uh, that what he is doing is not in the, the best interests of the public. And uh, it doesn't correspond with the ideals that he often writes and talks about. And uh, his supposed vehement uh, uh, opposition to the mainstream and corporate media that he's written about at great length and in, and in very, you know, persuasive and eloquent detail. Let me be the first to say that I've been a fan of a lot of his work in the past as well. Um, and could you imagine any other person in, in any sort of mainstream environment who was uh, writing about, for example, the Anwar al-Awlaki case and, and what happened there? I mean, there was absolutely no one who was touching that type of stuff. So, so let me say that I've been um, certainly Actually, if there was, it would be Scahill, who's his partner now. Well, there you go. Exactly. And uh, yeah, there's a lot to say about that as well. So I I do have respect for for a lot of the things that he's done in the past, but I think it has to be put in the framework of what's happening right now. And um, my, I I mean, for whatever I've heard about him from behind the scenes and what he, you know, what he's like and and whatever, I mean, that's all hearsay and uh, and the proof is in the pudding. And uh, that's what I judge people by. And it was when uh, suddenly he... Not only is he uh, signing book deals and movie deals for the the rights to to the Snowden story, um, literally within weeks of the Snowden story breaking, um, he was already working on the book deal, um, which has got to tell you something about what's happening. And and for people who who don't think that's that's important, um, the book deal was specifically sold to the public. Um, for, the publisher is is touting it as having information that that uh, that has not been released yet. So so he is specifically holding back information so that he can. And sell it to you know the highest bidder for book publishers and stuff, which is seedy enough in and of itself. But I think it takes on an entirely different level of, of kind of through the looking glass craziness when you look at his um, his uh, venture with o- uh, Pierre Omidyar, the founder of eBay, the who is the principal at PayPal, which has uh, even in Glenn Greenwald's own admission, he doesn't doubt that PayPal has a relationship with the NSA, which is a pretty startling thing for someone who's 
entering into a relationship with one of the principal executives at PayPal to say, um, and then to stay with a straight face that he doesn't believe there's any conflict of interest in this reporting. So he is one of the only two people who supposedly has the full the full um, uh, real treasure trove of documents from, from Snowden. They were given to him and Laura Poitras, who is another person who is involved in this very same venture with uh, Pierre Omidyar, the billionaire, founder of eBay, who is uh, injecting $250 million of his funds into a journalism venture that will feature, of course, uh, Scahill, Greenwald, Poitras, and an assortment of other journalists. And uh, and so the at the very least, the optics of this situation is that someone who has business Business ties directly in with the NSA has just purchased the full treasure trove of, of Snowden documents, the NSA treasure trove, from one of the, the, the journalists to who, whom it was entrusted um, for $250 million. I mean, that's the optics of the situation. And I'm willing to to certainly admit and entertain the idea that, that it's nothing like that and it's going to be above board. But you'll forgive me for maintaining my skepticism, yeah. uh, at least until that point when, um, you know, Greenwald publishes the documents that, that completely blow open the PayPal NSA relationship and bring down PayPal, uh, you know, at that point, maybe I'll start to take it somewhat more seriously. Well, let me add my beef too. I'll tell you what, I, my, my red flags as this has been going along. Um, first, well, yesterday he got up on Israeli TV and said that Jonathan Pollard ought to be released out of jail, which just discredits everything he's ever done in my opinion. But um, prior to that, and even prior to Pierre, was when Snowden originally leaked the documents. Uh, Greenwald wasn't his first pick, but it ended up going to him. But what he said was, in the conditions, supposedly, is that we, he wanted the whole prison program slides to be shown, 40-something uh, of them, 41, and I think only four were shown and uh, from The Guardian. But Greenwald has them all. So this Greenwald's um, excuse or, or explanation for why he doesn't just release all the documents is that well, you know, you, you have to vet them and you have to make sure they're right, even though you can believe Snowden and you can have faith in them. Still, as a journalist, you have to dig through whatever the claim is and make sure it's right and verify it. And then after you verify it, you can release it, and that slows it all down. But And it's not because they weren't organized, because he did organize them. But, okay, but that excuse doesn't apply at all to the prison program because it's just saying, look, here are these slides. Show all 41 of them. I think it was 41. Well, just show all of them. And they ended up only showing four, and I think Lamont showed a couple more, but we still haven't seen all those slides. Um, and that has been vetted. So what's the deal? Why are they sitting on that? So that shows to me that the the idea of, oh, well, it's just taking me a long time to, to verify all this is, uh, you know, could have been true, but I don't think it is because of this slide uh, scenario. They could have released that because if you release some of them and they're all from the same, you know, uh, topic, then why not the rest of them? Another thing to keep in mind, of course, about this story is that everything, and I mean absolutely everything that we know about Snowden, his intentions, the documents themselves, what they contain, what they don't contain, every, all of this information is coming from the intermediaries, coming from Greenwald, coming from Poitras, coming from Gelman, coming from the very people who are involved in the, in this entire drama. So we have to take everything they say with a giant grain of salt. And because, I mean, we know that they've been caught out in lies um, about this before. And just, I mean, on one of the most basic and maybe trivial, but still 
still one of the most basic points. How many documents did uh, Snowden have? Um, when it first came out, Greenwald was saying it was 9,000 to 10,000 documents. Suddenly that changed to the 58,000 documents that we know the Guardian managed to get their hands on. Um, now they're saying that the full treasure trove is 1.7 million. I've heard 2 million bandied about. And an NSA official even came out and said everything, uh, in quotation marks, everything was taken by Snowden. So apparently right. he downloaded the entire NSA database or something like that. I mean, uh, it's just ridiculous at that point. But I mean, even basic facts about what happened here, we we, we don't have. And I think we have to, we take every single part of the story um, who met Snowden, where, when, um, what was the first contact, what were the conditions? I mean, all of this is being uh, t- uh, taken through intermediaries. So we have to we have to question absolutely every aspect of this story. And uh, when things don't add up, I think that we do deserve answers to that. And, uh, and I have a list of questions that I'd love to put to Glenn Greenwald um, if he were ever to actually engage with anyone other than the mainstream corporate media who he claims to despise. But he has uh, certainly taken on that role of being the kind of poster boy for for the you know the bad boy alternative media guy in the mainstream media and uh he's certainly made a name for himself that way in the last few months i think scott horton got an interview with him and and greenwald was was giving his like vetting excuses and stuff but he didn't hold his feet to the fire on the uh slide thing which i wish he would have i don't think scott did it on purpose i think he just didn't think about it or whatever but um yeah i i agree man that's and there's some things on Scahill too, and we're not going to have time to get into that because it's, we're going to run out. But I'll just tell the listeners to go just Google up Thomas Mountain, uh, Ryan Dawson interview, and because uh, Thomas Mountain is the man on African politics. And for Scahill to go over there, and he did a great uh, – he's like Greenwald. In the past, he did an excellent book on Blackwater, and then he did Dirty Wars, which, you know, of course, I'm against drones, and, and I knew the Anwar Alaki story inside and out too, but – for him to be over there for that long and to talk, you kind of it's kind of like the typical democracy Nile type of whitewashing, where there's you know nearly three million people dying of starvation and all this with USAID and these just giant crimes out in the open and you're talking about drone attacks that kill a dozen people here or there, um, and just missing um, the major major story and that's very questionable. But again, I, I can't get into all that, but I'll tell people to go check out the Thomas Mountain interview because he does an excellent job on it. And if I may be so um, ungracious, I would also inv- invite people to check out my interview with uh, Douglas Valentine on on Scahill's Dirty Wars, which, uh, again, along similar lines, the things that Scahill didn't tell you about the uh, the Dirty Wars. I have not seen that yet, so I'm going to check that out. Maybe I'll link, that, I'll link below to that uh, as soon as we're done. And uh, well, actually, we only have six minutes. So, is there anything you want to uh, plug? I know you work for Global Research and also the Boiling Frogs Post, and there's uh, your own uh, site. That was your original site, I guess, the Cobert Report. That's right. It all branched out from there. I also do a weekly, uh, actually bi-weekly uh, editorial for the International Forecaster. So I've got my fingers in a lot of pies and I uh, update uh, FukushimaUpdate.com on a regular basis as well. So uh, a lot going on, but CorbettReport.com is kind of the one-stop shop for that. And I must admit that my mind is swimming with Federal Reserve information right now because I'm still in the midst of this. Uh, it, w- it was meant to be kind of a podcast and then it turned into a podcastumentary. I want to coin that phrase, but now it's basically just going to be a feature-length documentary. So I uh, I've been researching and working on that pretty much nonstop the entire New Year break, and uh, I'm kind of just uh, kind of obsessed with all the details right now. So, well, man, head... I, I could have had you on to talk about the Fed. No problem. I love bashing the Fed. Excellent. <laughs> well, tell you what, when it's released, I'd be happy to come on and, and really tear into it with you. 
Sure, you might like the first chapter in my uh, the book. Separation of business and state. I went over the banking fiasco and... It's not really a history on the Fed, but it does do to some of their modern crimes. Exactly. When just uh, just the latest in that, you know, never-ending role of, of... But it is it's the greatest theft in in the history of Earth. I mean, they took $20 trillion. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what's what's greater than that? I mean, it's the it's the control over the money supply itself. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter how many zeros you add onto it. I mean, it's, right. it's control at the very source. Um, yeah, no, I, absolutely. I, it's just in, insane. It is absolutely insane. And anyone who steps back and looks even at the last few years and what's been accomplished um, should, I mean, marvel at the beast, I guess. I mean, it's just absolutely mind-boggling how... Uh, how how they've gotten away with it and uh, in broad daylight without the public even getting angry that's kind of the the other piece of this puzzle i well, mean I without could, uh, press is the reason i mean the the all the all the three letter networks are in debt up to their eyeballs and and they just depend on these banks rolling over their loans or they're out of business so they never report on it they actually did the opposite they got up there and fed us the too big to fail propaganda and that was about the government bailouts and it wasn't even talking about the secret bailouts from the fed which were even larger absolutely yeah now trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars handed out to all sorts of banks including offshore banks i mean just it's insane and uh you're right i mean the the missing part of this is is education generally whether it's from the press or or what what have you but i mean that's the thing that's really struck me from from researching the history of the the creation of the the various central banks that have existed in the u.s over the the centuries is that this has been the fundamental driving force behind American politics since its inception. In fact, since before the inception, it's the birth of the nation. Um, it, it has been the absolute center of, of political and economic life. And that was it, the issue. Exactly in, right. Until television. And, well, until at least until the creation of the Fed. And, and well, since yeah. then, they've managed to smooth it all over. And now people don't even know even then you what had money William, is. William Jennings Bryan was running and then it just kind of died until, I don't know, Ron Paul brought it up again, but it used to be the central issue every single presidential race. Absolutely right. And, um, and I, until people see that history and understand it, I don't think they really realize what, uh, what's been repressed all this time. But it is good to see, you know, Ron Paul and, and others are bringing this to people's attention again. And, uh, and that, I really think that that's the, uh, the, the potential for something truly revolutionary, not just the kind of uh, lip service revolution that, that comes along to basically uh, let the steam off of the boiling pot. Well, do you have an idea when your podcast documentary documentary is going to be finished? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to say because every time I say it will be wrong. Um, let's just say within the next month, we'll say that. Um, and that, that's a pretty safe bet. Okay, so this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, sometime this century. Well, I know how that is. Well, um, pleasure having you on, James. I like covering a lot of ground. I don't really, you know, I know we went from topic to topic, but that's what I like to do. I don't think... It's really necessary. We learn this in school that like, oh, this is the subject for this class and that's all we're going to get into. But I mean, politics is very flexible like that. And um, I don't mind covering different topics because that's that's reality. Just to say, well, this doesn't fit into this category. And that's a ridiculous reason not to talk about something. So we can start with Russian bombings and end up on the Fed. Uh, Perfect for me. Absolutely. Well, I really enjoyed it as well. And uh, I am looking forward to talking to you on the Corbett Report about your book, which I recently purchased and I'm going to devour um, with with great relish in the, in the coming Oh, well, you can finish your – I know you, you finish your stuff first. Uh, but you might want to read the first two chapters in that book because it actually tackles the uh, banking fiasco. So that might help you with your documentary. Noted and logged. Looking forward to it.
Okay, man. Well, uh, take care, and uh, maybe I'll see you over on, on your show later. Great. Take care. <laughs> take care. Bye-bye. Don't go anywhere, folks. I want to leave you with a clip from Dr. Al Jarafari that I mentioned in the talk earlier with James Corbett. Uh, this is at a press conference after a meeting at the UN, and he's giving serious case, and he mentions the sponsorship that Saudi Arabia gives terrorists, and he also says governments, s plural, and we all know who he's talking about. Foreign country A. Uh, uh, done by CNN, uh, the Independent, uh, the British newspapers. I mean, it's no secret anymore. Everybody is speaking about the, uh, the role of the Saudi intelligence into this uh, extremely dangerous uh, uh, game that is taking place into, inside Syria. I'm not only referring to the chemical issue. The Saudis are involved in establishing uh, uh, yeah, in, in sponsoring uh, uh, all kind of terrorist groups in Syria, including Jabhat al-Nusra, which is, as you know, enlisted on the uh, list of the Security Council of entities and individuals sponsoring terrorism. So somebody should make serious pressure on the Saudi regime and, and you know, uh, uh, hold it uh, responsible for these uh, horrible and horrendous crimes perpetrated against the Syrian uh, people. I, I needed to focus on what's going on right now in Adra, in the city of Adra, it's a workers' city. All workers there. They, there is no army. There is no nothing over there that would justify, uh, you know, such uh, uh, horrible crimes against the civilians. They are gathering the civilians in the basements of each building, so that if the army starts attacking the city, the civilians would be the first victims. Besides, they are slaughtering people. Uh, uh, on a sectarian and confessional basis, uh, I wouldn't go into details. This is horrible what's, what's going on over there. But, you know, you should uh, uh, hold responsible those who are sponsoring these terrorists also. The, there are governments, regimes, members of this organization who are sponsoring these terrorists publicly.